but I have been taking just a few Sundays that I usually do at Christmas time in the end of the year to exhort you in a few things that we're going through. And so uh, I'm going to do one more Sunday, uh, which is this Sunday, to exhort you in some things that I think that are important to us as believers as a, and, and as a church. And so I'd like to just take a few minutes to talk to you about the biblical reasons and rationale and desire and fill in the blank about our mission and our vision for us as a church and followers of Jesus Christ. Now, a mission statement, and I've seen lots of them, uh, sometimes I think that the churches just do that to be hip. Oh, we should have a mission statement or a vision statement. And then uh, nobody really knows what it is. And uh, the, the pastors and the elders uh, basically just go, go their merry way. And it has nothing to do with really who they are or where they're going. And uh, we did not want to do that at all. And uh, as a matter of fact, for... I think about 18 years, we never did have a mission or a vision statement in our church. And I can tell you that it's a lot of work to actually think through this process, pray through this process, to really come to a place in your spirit and your heart where you believe that your mission and your vision is lining up with the will of God, with the word of God, and that it is biblical. And it's not something that we want to do. It's something that we feel the Lord is doing and we're responding to it. And so we did put a lot of thought and a lot of prayer into it as, as uh, elders. And uh, we last year, uh, and this is not like a pity party or feel sorry for us. It was a joy to do. But for many months, we were having at least two meetings uh, every month. Uh, and sometimes we pulled Saturdays uh, just to work through a lot of stuff that we felt needed to be put in place so that we could uh, have a mission and a vision that helped us and guided us in all of the decisions that we were making uh, in ministry uh, here at Calvary Chapel. So uh, here's our mission statement. It's a blank. Uh, at the top, it says, Calvary Chapel Kelowna exists to glorify God and through verse-by-verse -verse teaching of the Bible to encourage, equip, and build up his people. And submit joyfully to him, love one another, and share the reason for their hope. So I'd like to just take a few minutes, and I'd like to talk to you a little bit about our heart as we talk about our mission and our vision. The best way to describe the difference between these two things is a mission is really what a church is now, what we really see ourselves being now, and a vision is where we see ourselves heading in the future. And so our mission is, right off the top, is to glorify God. We exist to glorify God. God. We're not here to exalt personalities. We are not here to get on the latest bandwagon of the newest book that's been written to promote church growth. 
Uh, we're not here to try to find the key to being culturally relevant. We're here to glorify God. That is why we exist. I don't know if you have this book. I've recommended it to you. It's by J.I. Packer, a good Anglican who is born again and loves the Lord Jesus and taught at Regent College for many years when Regent College was worth going to. Out of his book, Knowing God, I'd like to just read something. I'm quoting him. On the 7th of January, 1855, a young 20-year-old minister took the pulpit of New Park Street Chapel, Southwark, and opened his morning sermon as follows. Obviously, this minister is from England, because who else would have so many words to describe where they are? New Park Street Chapel, Southwark. And I'm sure uh, Gene knows where that is. I don't have a clue, but it's in England. Gene, where is that? South London. South London. Why didn't they just say that? <laughs> and this is what this 20-year-old minister said as he opened up his sermon on the 7th of January, Sunday morning, 1855. 20 years old. At 20 years old, I was wondering where my socks were. <laughs> it has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose this idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his father. And of course, that minister was none other than Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. His words were true then, and they're true now. J.I. Packer goes on in his introduction to his book, Knowing God, and he said that when it comes to knowing God, there are five basic truths, five foundational principles of the knowledge about God which Christians have and will determine our course throughout. And they are as follows. Number one, God has spoken to man, and the Bible is his word, given to us to make us wise unto salvation. Number two, God is Lord and King over his world. He rules all things from his own glory, displaying his perfections in all that he does in order that men and angels may worship and adore him. Number three, God is Savior active in sovereign love through the Lord Jesus Christ to rescue believers from guilt and power of sin, to adopt them as his sons, and to bless them accordingly. Number four, God is triune. There are, within the Godhead, three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, 
and the work of salvation is one in which all three act together. The Father purposing redemption, the Son securing it, and the Spirit applying it. Number five, godliness means responding to God's revelation in trust and obedience, faith and worship, prayer and praise, submission and service. Life must be seen and life must be seen and lived in the light of God's word. This and nothing else is true religion. Those five aren't up there? I guess they're not. Now, to further make my point, I'd like to go a little further back in history, and I'd like to quote to you the Westminster Confession of Faith. Are you all familiar with the Westminster Confession of Faith? You should be. It was drawn up in the 1640s <laughs> by an assembly of 151 theologians, mostly Presbyterians and Puritans, at the Westminster Abbey, and it wanted to get to the bottom of what would be the standard of doctrine for the Church of Scotland and many Presbyterian churches throughout the world. And really the background to all of this was because Henry VIII had separated from the Catholic Church and uh, started the Church of England, and now these theologians had to sit down and ask themselves, what is it that we actually believe and practice? And so we come to the Westminster Confession of faith. There is the longer version, and this is the shorter version. The shorter version has 107 articles. I'll start with number one. <laughs> Actually, I just want to read the first three to make the point of where we're going here. And it's hard to improve upon the first, actually on all of them, I would say. But the first three, they ask the question, number one, what is the chief end of man? What is the purpose of man? What was the answer? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Question two. What rule hath God given to a, a what rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? If that is our chief purpose, how do we do that? Answer, the word of God which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. It is the only rule to direct us how we may, uh, may glorify and enjoy him. Question three, what do the scriptures principally teach? How do you actually distill that question down into one sentence? Well, here's the answer that they came up with. The scriptures principally teach what a man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. I think we're standing on firm, historical, theological, biblical ground when we start at the very top and say the mission of our church is that we exist to glorify God. We are not here to glorify man. We are not here to lift up Dale. We are not here to lift up a denomination. We are not here to glorify a movement. We are here to glorify God. We exist to glorify God. You know, I like the word glory and glorify 
but it's always a mysterious word to me. And when I read it in the Bible, uh, and I read about the glory of God, or something's been, there's glory of something, or something's been glorified, I often stand back and I go, what is a working definition of this word glory? Uh, I come from a Pentecostal background, and so when we had prayer meetings back then, we had a Jamaican gal that was in our church, and her favorite word was glory. And in the prayer meeting, she would get up and she'd go, glory. Because glory doesn't mean glory if you don't say it that way. You just can't say glory to God. You've got to say glory to God. You guys want to practice? The glory of God is the beauty of his spirit. It's not an aesthetic beauty or a material beauty, but it is the beauty that emanates from his character. It is the very essence of all that he is. It is the glory of God. Isaiah 43, 7 says that God created us for his glory. All that he is, he wants to share with us. It says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him, yes, I have made him. Now, if you look at this in context with other verses, it could be said that man glorifies God because through man, God's glory can be seen in things such as love, music, heroism, many things. Things belonging to God that we are carrying, as it were, in these jars of clay. We are vessels which contain his glory. And all the things that we are able to do and to be find their source in him, for he is glorious in himself. We also see the glory of God when we look around at creation. The Bible tells us in Psalm 119, verses 1 to 4, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone throughout all the earth, and their utterance to the end of the world. When we look at creation, when we look at all that is around us, the expanse of the universe, the galaxy, the stars, and all of it that it contains, the Bible says that it contains the glory of God. It manifests the glory of God. Nature exhibits the glory of God. His glory is revealed to man's mind through the material world in many ways, and often in, different, in many different ways to different people. One may be thrilled at the sight of the mountains. The other may be just overwhelmed at walking along the shores of an ocean. But that which is behind both of them or the things that we see out there speaks to us all and reveals to us the glory of God. It's what we call natural revelation. We can see from what has been made that the maker is indeed glorious. And that's just what we can see in this world, never mind when we turn our telescopes and begin to look out into our solar system, when we get, look into our planetary system, when we look into our galaxy, when we look into space, 
truly the glory of God is manifested beyond anything that our minds can comprehend. And when they begin to look at the numbers of what it takes for life to be held together in such precision, uh, not only that, our lives, our molecules, the stuff that builds things together, did you know that a proton is exactly 1,836 times bigger than the electron that circles it? Not 1,835, exactly 1,836. And even though the proton is much larger in size than the electron, they both hold the exact same electrical charge so that everything can be held together. Do you know that our planet is exactly where it needs to be in our planetary system so that life can actually exist? If we were too close, we'd be fricassee fried. We'd be, co we'd be human kebabs. If we were too far, we'd just be big chunks of ice. We're exactly where we need to be. Do you know that the axis, the tilt 23 and a half degrees, it's exactly what we need for life to evolve upon this, uh, to exist on this, on this world. It's precision. And when you look at all the numbers that made this happen, the numbers are so big that you can't even comprehend them. Do you know that our, that our planetary system, our, our, our system is exactly where it needs to be in the Milky Way? If it was anywhere else, it would spin out of control. But it's right where it needs to be. And I could go on and on and on. Truly, when you read Psalm 119, the heavens declare the glory of God. The thing about the earth's glory and man's glory is that it fades away. It's not going to last. The Bible says in Psalm 49, 17, for when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. How much are you going to carry away when you die? Nothing. Nothing. His glory shall not descend after him. In the human earthly sense, glory is a beauty or a vibrancy that rests upon the material earth. But in that sense, it fades. And the reason it fades is because the material things that we see around us they're not going to last. They die. They wither. And the glory that is in them belongs to God, and it will return to God when death and decay takes its normal course. Now, since God is the one from whom glory comes, he will not let stand the assertion that glory comes from man or from idols of man or from nature. And that's why idolatry is prohibited in the Bible because it has no glory in and of itself. Its glory comes from God itself who has made it all. James 1.10 says, But the rich in his humiliation, because of a flower of the field, he will pass away. His glory is going to fade away. What does that mean? The verse admonishes the rich man to realize that his wealth and his power and his beauty comes from God. And to be humbled by the realization that it is God who makes him what he is and gives him all that he has. And the knowledge that he will pass away like the grass or a flower 
brings them to the realization that God is the one from whom all glory comes. God's glory is the source, the wellspring from which all smaller, all smaller glories run. So what does it mean to glorify God? Well, at the risk of being very plain, to glorify God means to give glory to him. It means to recognize and to acknowledge that all that we have, all that we are, is from God, and one day it will all return to God. Glorifying God begins with agreeing with everything he says in his word, especially about himself. Glorifying God means that we rehearse his attributes and his deeds, and we praise him with our mouth, with our heart, with our attitudes, that his attributes and his deeds are worthy of being praised. When we tell of God's work in our lives, how he has saved us from our sin, and the marvelous works that he's done in our hearts and our minds every day, we glorify him before others. To glorify God is to extol his attributes, his holiness, faithfulness, mercy, grace, love, majesty, sovereignty, power, and omniscience, to just name a few rehearsing them over and over in our minds and telling each other about the beauty and the glory of God is just one of the ways in how we glorify God. So how do we do this? If we exist to glorify God, how do we glorify this? Well, our conclusion is that we glorify God through verse-by-verse -verse teaching of the Bible. Verse-by-verse verse teaching of the Bible. That's it? Well, if we're teaching faithfully through the full counsel of God, verse-by-verse, verse, in it we will find everything that we need to be instructed about life, holiness, service, money, sex, you name it, it's in it. And we're not interested in what the world or man has to say about it, we're interested in what God has to say about those subjects. And so if we are to glorify God, we will teach God's people verse by verse as these things come up. You know, the prophet said that there was a famine in the land for the word of God. God's people were perishing for a lack of God's word. Do you know, um, I'm not tooting my own horn here or whatever. I'm doing what I'm doing today because I actually believe in what I'm doing. I believe that God's people should know God's word. And I think the, one of the best ways to do that is to open it on a Sunday morning and read from it and teach from it. That coming from our pulpits today. That's my opinion. I'm not criticizing any other church. I'm not standing in judgment of any other church. But I am saying that if we are going to glorify God, we will do it by getting God's people into the Bible, the whole Bible, nothing but the Bible, so help us God. And if you believe that, say, yep. The Bible is God's word. Let me say that to you again. The Bible is God's word. It is or it isn't. It ain't or it is. 
And everything that you and I are going to do in this life as followers of Jesus is going to be determined on whether we have made up our mind that God's word is the word of God. And that everything that we do in our life, the way that we live our lives, the way that we conduct our relationships, the way that we uh, give, the way that we, everything that we do is based upon God's word. And it is either God's word or it's not God's word. And if it is God's word, then it's true. And everything that you and I will walk through can be found basically in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. Because there you had the beautiful creation, God saw that it was good, and then you had the tempter. And what was the temptation that was right off the top when he said to Eve, behold, did God really say that? He hasn't changed. Nothing has changed. His playbook is old. And we are going to have to decide whether God's word is fact true. And when we do that, we're going to learn to live by faith rather than sight. We're going to learn to live. We're going to say, well, I certainly don't feel like doing this, but God's word says it's true, so I'm going to do it. And blessings follow, and challenges follow, and people might not be happy about it, but we would rather please God than please man. So how do we, uh, how do we glorify God? We've determined that the best way is to teach God's people verse by verse. I just often try to think of how I can impress upon God's people the importance of God's word, how critical it is to read it, to memorize it, to hide it into your heart, but more than that, to trust it and obey it. And when I think about the importance of God's word, I often think, Lord, how could I say something? How could I express something to the church to give this truth some type of, like, like holding up a diamond so that people could admire it and awe of how beautiful and wonderful it is? And I always come back to the Gideon's introduction to the Bible. The Gideons are a ministry that put Bibles in hotels and, well, any place they can get a Bible in. Now, the Bible, many opponents have tried to prove it false and destroy it. But true believers stake their lives on it and will give their lives for it because it's true. I would much rather give my life for the truth than a lie. Its contents will infuriate many the culturally elite. Yet the same contents will inspire those considered to be least by this world to rise above their circumstances by faith, radiate God's glory, and do great and wonderful things for his cause. And so why does this book cause such a passionate reaction? Well, this is what the introduction to the Gideon's Bible says. The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable, unchangeable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, 
practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here, too, heaven is opened and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mind of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. It is given you in life, will be opened at the judgment, and be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, rewards the greatest labor, and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. How do we glorify God? By teaching verse by verse through the Bible. And so we hold to the scriptures so that we may do three things. If I could have the mission statement back up there, please. We exist to glorify God through verse-by-verse teaching of the Bible so that we might encourage you, that we might equip you, and that we might build you up. That's our mission. Our mission is to glorify God through verse-by-verse teaching of the Bible so that we can encourage you, equip you, and build you up. Who's in for that? Yeah. You'd have to be the town drunk not to be in for that. (laughs) Hey, wait a minute, I was. Uh, But Christ found me. Now, this is exactly what Paul uh, prayed or wrote uh, in his letters. And as we as guys were going through the Bible, trying to determine how to actually succinctly put this all together, some of these scriptures are what we looked at. For instance, Colossians 1, 27 to 29. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect or mature, fully mature in Christ Jesus. To this end, Paul says, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. To put this in simplest form so that Dale could understand it, this is God's church. It's not my church. It's God's church. I am his under-shepherd. You are his people, and we are seeking to do his will. And the only way And I would add the best way to accomplish that is by taking his word to our hearts. Now I'd like to just simply move on to our vision statement. A vision statement is where we'd like to see ourselves going to in the future as what we are becoming now. And if you read our vision statement, it has four purposes. You can see it up there. It is that you would mature in Christ submit joyfully to him, that you would love one another, and that you would share the reason for the hope that is within you, or that you would tell others about Jesus. That's our vision. You will see that in our vision statement, it is not to build a big building. It is not to squeeze people for their last dollar and guilt them over it. None of those things are important to us. 
God, in his own wisdom and in his own time, will add on to us that which he wants to add on so that he may be glorified and his kingdom may be built. That is why we put an offering box out there, and we don't take an offering. Is, there, is it unscriptural to take an offering? No. But we put it out there because we want the grace of God to excel in you in giving. We want giving to be a grace. We don't want to stand up here and say, it's all about money for us. It's not all about money. It's about Jesus. And when he is glorified and edified, people have generous hearts. Amen? So we want you to mature in Christ. And when we look at these four things, maturing, submitting, loving, and sharing, you can see that we are growing inwardly, we are growing upwardly, and we are reaching out. And we talked about all these things. Well, what's our vision statement? Uh, uh, Growing inwardly, reaching upwardly, and reaching outwardly. And we, you know, trust me, we went through a lot of different things. But this is where we, we, we really based it upon this scripture, and it's found in Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. We think our vision should be found in these verses. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, a fully mature person, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about every wind, with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by uh, what every joint supplies according to the effect of working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. How can you improve on that? The Apostle Paul wrote to the Colossians in verse, uh, chapter 2, six, verses 6 to 8. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of this world, and not according to Christ. Our vision is is that we would listen to what God says in his word, by his Holy Spirit, and you know that the Holy Spirit and the word of God always agree. Amen? That you would listen But more than just listen, but that we would obey. Because Jesus said about the two uh, uh, house builders, you know, uh, one built on the sand and the other uh, built a little deeper and built on the rock. And when the storms of life hit these houses, one crumpled because it was built on sand and the other stood because it was built on a rock. And he basically said, so is it that everyone who hears my words and does them, right? 
You're built on a rock. And so it's not just about hearing the word of God. It's also about submitting to the word of God. And if you want to see blessing in your life, submit to what God says. You know, <clears throat> if you go through James, he says, where, where, where do wars come and fights and quarrels among you? Because <laughs> you lust and you do not have. So peace and joy comes from not only hearing the word of God, but our vision is, is that we'd also obey and submit to the word of God. Now, you know how I roll. I can't let this just pass because I would ask myself and I would ask you. I know you're all hearing the word of God and maybe many of you have cut your teeth growing up in churches. And I'm very thankful for the example that your parents have uh, given to you in the home and by faithfully taking you to the house of worship. But it doesn't mean a thing if you ain't got that swing. And that swing is submitting to what you know to be true. Trusting. Now, do we do that perfectly all the time? Of course not. We all fall down. We're not perfect people. But we realize that that's where the Lord is taking us. Trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And then it should produce love. For without love, and we talked a little bit about it, we can have all knowledge, we can give all our gifts, we can have all, everything, but without love, we're just empty, clanging symbols. And then that we would be a church that has a desire to take every opportunity to share the love of Jesus with people that don't know him yet. So in conclusion... I would like to just read a couple quotes to you from one of my favorite authors, A.W. Tozer. And this is what A.W. Tozer says, the church's mightiest influence is felt when she is different from the world in which she lives. Her power lies in her being different, rises with the degree in which she differs, and sinks as the difference diminishes. This is so fully and clearly taught in the scriptures and so well illustrated in church history that it is hard to see how we could miss it. But miss it we do. For we hear constantly that the church must try to be as much like the world as possible, excepting, of course, where the world is too, too sinful. Let us plant ourselves on the hill of Zion and invite the world to come over to us but never under any circumstances are, will we go over to them. The cross is the symbol of Christianity, and the cross speaks of death and separation, never of compromise. No one ever compromised with a cross. The cross separated between the dead and the living. The timid and the fearful will cry, that is too extreme, and they will be right. The cross is the essence of all that is extreme and final. The message of Christ is a call across a gulf from death to life, from sin to righteousness, from Satan to God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, Paul says, So that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe, for, for from whom you the word of the Lord sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. 
Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. One more quote and I'm done. A.W. Tozer, I would like to see a church become so godly, so spirit-filled that it would have a spiritual influence on all the churches in the entire area. Paul told some of his people, you became a model to all the believers, and your faith in God has become known everywhere. We just read it in 1 Thessalonians. It is entirely right that I should hope this of you. I could hope that we might become so spirit-filled, walking with God, learning to worship, living so clean and so separated that everybody would know it and the other churches in our area would be blessed on the account of it. There is no reason why we could not be a people so filled with the Spirit, so joyfully singing His praises and living so clean in our businesses and home and school that the people in other churches would know it and recognize it. And might I add that we would glorify God. Amen? My prayer for us, my prayer for me, is quite simple as we move into 2020. <laughs> it's never changed. It never will change. I pray that you will glorify God in all that you do. I pray that you will exist for God's glory. I pray that it will be the desire of your heart and your life to glorify God in your lives. That you, by your lives, as the Bible, as God's word dwells richly in your heart, would be encouraged, that you'd be equipped, and that you would be built up, and that you would mature and grow into a perfect person in Christ, that you would not only hear the word, but you would submit joyfully to him, that you would love one another fervently from your heart, and that you would be about the great commission which is to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much today for what you're doing in the midst of us. I look around today at all the people and I say, praise God. It is wonderful and the Lord has done it. I thank you, Lord, for every old person, and by that I mean who have been a part of this congregation for years and years, and for every new person that has come. And that, Holy Spirit, you have taken the word of God and fanned a flame, a fire in their hearts. And, Lord, they are enjoying knowing you, walking with you, serving you. I thank you for that. We pray, Lord God, that as we put you at the center of our thoughts and desires, that you will be glorified and it will please you, Lord God, to continue to draw hungry and thirsty people, Lord, to this place where you might do a work in their hearts and their lives. So, Lord, as we start 2020, we, Lord, commit ourselves not to our heart's desire, not, Lord God, to our dreams and ambitions, but, Lord, joyfully submitting, Lord, to you. Be glorified in our lives, Lord. Let us bring glory to you. Let us know the pleasure and the joy of the Lord as we do it. And we ask this for your sake, in Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, Amen. Well, let's stand and sing as we leave a benediction.